Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Birth of Grox. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about orchid farming, evolution, and living long. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. John Garbisher, who will discuss his book, Prime Obsession. Also, we'll find out why making amphetamines is so dangerous. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grok's. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. So, what's going down and what's happening this week? Well, I've discovered a new hobby. And what's the new hobby? Orchid farming. Orchid farming? Yeah. What, uh, you what, make what is an orchid, by the way, and how uh, do you orchid. farm it? Basically, it's, it's like a friendster thing, social networking on the uh, internet. Oh, okay. And you farm your friends by uh, getting people on and uh, making connections with them. Oh, okay. So, it, well, we had an interview with uh, last week or the other week. Right, Professor Duncan Watts. Duncan Watts, yeah. Uh, talking about just connections between people and how close you can get yeah. to Kevin Bacon, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, there's John Kerry's on there. John Kerry? Right. The John Kerry? The John Kerry. Apparently it's certified, so we just can assume it's uh, the real one. Oh, okay. He has no political affiliation. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to know. You know, eliminate any partisanists. I actually did a search for your name, and uh, there were several people with your same name, actually. Oh, is that right? Yes. One's a hard-right Christian, and then the other guy is dating men and women. Well, okay, that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> and the other disturbing thing, or the actual disturbing thing was he also likes William Hong. It's definitely not me. <laughs> Nothing against William Hung, but I, I have certain standards. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, cool. Well, we should set up like a group or something on the... Uh, yeah, network. yeah. Uh, I think we should call it Grox, right? Yes, there we go. How about that? And, uh, right. So if anyone out there wants to uh, hang out with us, look for Grox on the Orchid, uh-huh. uh, orchid.com, or uh, if they want to get invited, just email us here at grox at hotmail.com. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to chat with all of, all of our, our fan or whoever listens to this program. <laughs> It's okay. fun to entertain people. Yes. All right. Well, speaking of stuff on the internet, there's actually a cool site that actually popped up here at Berkeley. Oh, what what's the site? Evolution.berkeley.edu. Ah, okay. And is the site evolving, or is it about evolution? I think it's certainly evolving, and uh, part of the reason why it's up is to uh, to balance the rhetoric that's going on in the country about taking evolution out of the textbooks. Oh, okay. So this was funded by the National Science Foundation and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and created by the uh, Department of Paleontology here, and it's supposed to give teachers K-12 through a, uh, a primer on what exactly is evolution. Okay, so it's sort of to counteract the uh, opposing point of view, which has had a great deal to say on how life could have evolved otherwise. Right. According to many textbooks, they simply define evolution as changes with time. Uh, Their definition is actually descent with modification, both uh, short run as well as generation to generation, or many generations linked to new species. Okay. 
So the uh, director, David Lindbergh, is pretty excited since this will give a balancing forum for people to find good information about science. Right. Well, I think what they need to do is actually create a church of evolution. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. The church of science. The church of science. Okay, well, so if people want to learn more about uh, the evolution website and... Uh, uh, just uh, go to evolution.berkeley.edu. All right, so what are your, some of your favorite designs? I like the Mini Cooper. The Mini Cooper's good. Even though I don't own one. It's very nice and short and compact. Yeah. You don't like the Hummer? Yeah, a bit too bulky for me. I think <laughs> the governor would have a better appreciation for it. <laughs> yeah, that sort of suits him. Well, apparently, uh, when it comes to designs, the phallus is right up there on the top of the list. Really? You mean God knows what he's doing? God or Mother Nature or somebody uh, apparently <laughs> stuck with a good thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> because it turns out that throughout uh, many species and many uh, different classifications in the animal kingdom, the uh, penis design is essentially the same throughout. Essentially the same? You mean long and obligated? Yeah, long and elongated and tube-like. <laughs> 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 apparently serves its function. Uh-huh. And it's kind of interesting because it, it represents what appears to be called convergent evolution. Uh, at least that's what it has been shown in a recent study in biology letters. So are you saying that this design has evolved from different species and different kingdoms as well? Yeah, different species in different directions. So it didn't all come from one ancestral species having developed the phallus. Right. And then all the species inheriting it. Mm -hmm. Many species just evolved it separately. Hmm. This was an interesting study done by Diane Kelly of the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, where she was actually looking at two different species in fact, the armadillo, which for some reason appears to be uh, the model organism for phallus research, uh -huh. and a turtle, which is a reptile. Right. So what she showed was, in fact, that the two have grossly the same morphological structures, mm -hmm. long, tube-like, but there's certain differences. For instance, the uh, armadillo phallus has two layers of what's called a uh, collagen layer, whereas the turtle has many more layers of this stuff, which makes it a much stronger phallus. Mm -hmm. And plus, they originate from different embryonic tissues, which shows that they evolved independently. In a case. Evolution in the works, I guess. Yes. Uh, I, I hope that is included in that evolution website that... <laughs> <laughs> that Mother Nature can evolve things in different ways. Smart. And so this is interesting work carried out by Diane Kelly, and it was published in Biology Letters. So, Charles, what do you do when you get lost in the forest? I scream, yell at the top of my lung, and then check the GPS. Ooh, <laughs> man, that's sophisticated. <laughs> yeah. You don't look at the uh, northern star anymore? No, I think I just kind of rely on uh, moss growing on the north side of the tree, and <laughs> that usually works. Well, you ever heard a term that's constant as the northern star? I've heard it, I've stared at the northern star and admired its constancy. In fact, it's not. What? <laughs> How can that be? Well, it turns out it's actually getting brighter and brighter and it's pulsating as a four-day pulsating cycle. I guess I, I haven't stared at it for four days to really notice that, but <laughs> <laughs> if you say so. Your neck gets a little stiff after yeah, that, I guess. Yeah, you know, I quit after about two days. <laughs> <laughs> I quit after ten seconds. <laughs> But a team led by graduate student uh, Scott Engel of Villanova University has determined that from historical measurements by Ptolemy that Polaris is about 2.5 times brighter than it was a thousand years ago. Oh, okay. And it turns out that as a result, it's not so constant despite the fact that it's in a position very close to the Earth's axis in the sky. Oh, okay. Is there a reason why it's pulsating so much? Probably the cycle in which, you know, it's converting hydrogen to helium, and that sort of waxes and wanes at, with the cycle of the stars, and okay. we shouldn't assume it's a constant thing. Right, right. And if I recall, it's kind of one of those aging stars, too, so it's probably right, close right. to... Maybe it's getting close to death or something. Yeah. But if anyone wants to know more, they can go to the June 1st edition of Science Now.
All right, and more news for all those dieters out there, that if they're restricting their calories, they may live a little longer. Wow, haven't we heard that for a while already? I, I think we have, so it, don't stuff yourself at the uh, buffet and you'll, you'll be doing fine. Yeah, I guess the more you eat, the more radicals you give off by burning, right? That's correct, and there's all kinds of problems, I guess. It makes sense, though, because as you grow older, if you have a lot of food around, mm-hmm. the idea is to mature quicker so you have more offspring. Right. Whereas if times are tough, you don't want to have offspring, so mature a little So slower. we're actually evolved not to eat so much, huh? This is true. It's the evolution show today. It turns out. <laughs> Anyway, so recent research, though, has implicated this particular protein called SIRT1. SIRT1? S-I-R-T-1. And this appears to be involved in linking the amount of food intake and fat breakdown. Mm -hmm. So researchers have basically shown that SIRT1 blocks the activity of several genes that boost fat production. So there could be some genetic engineering to uh, trim people down, perhaps? Yeah, well, that's certainly the hope, and hopefully in the process increase the lifespan. (laughs) (laughs) Which is always a plus. Wow. Now now we're controlling our evolution. Yes. (laughs) This was interesting work, and it was carried out by Frederick Picard of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Excellent. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, we'll be joined by Mr. John Darbyshire, discussing his book, Prime Obsession, Bernhard Riemann and the Greatest Unsolved Problem in Mathematics. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, let's start today with a little review. As we may all remember from elementary mathematics, a prime number is a number that can only be divided by itself and the number 1. This simple property of certain numbers, however, has been the subject of centuries of mathematic research, and a conjecture associated with it, called the Riemann hypothesis, has been proclaimed as the greatest unsolved problem in mathematics. So much so that the person who solves it can claim a million-dollar prize and, of course, everlasting fame and fortune. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss this million-dollar mathematical dilemma is Mr. John Darbyshire. Mr. Darbyshire is a mathematician and linguist by education, a systems analyst by profession, and a celebrated writer in his spare time, whose work appears frequently in National Review and The New Criterion. He is the author of the book Prime Obsession, Bernhard Riemann and the Greatest Unsolved Problem in Mathematics, and he joins us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss prime numbers and the Riemann hypothesis. Uh, Mr. Darbyshire, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Oh, thank you for having me on the show, Charles. Uh, well, it's certainly our pleasure, and certainly written a very fascinating book, Prime Obsession, Bernhard Riemann and the Greatest Unsolved Problem in Mathematics. But I'm curious, before we jump into this problem, I'm wondering if you could maybe give us some background into this actually kind of complicated problem and maybe how it compares with some of the other more famous mathematical problems that have been out there, like Fermat's Last Theorem. Um, yeah. 
How does it compare with other great problems? Not well, I think is the answer, mainly because the Riemann hypothesis is not easy to grasp. It's, it's buried quite deep in some advanced mathematics, whereas something like Fermat's last theorem, you can explain to an intelligent 10-year-old, mm-hmm. or the four-color theorem. But the Riemann hypothesis, you really need a lot of math, even to understand what it says which is why, this, unfortunately, I had to put so much math in the book. I, I try to just give the minimum math that you need, but you do need a fair bit of math just to understand what the Riemann hypothesis is. But does that complexity translate into making it a more difficult problem to solve then? <laughs> Actually, no, not necessarily. Okay. Sometimes problems whose statement is very abstruse and hard to understand can be quite easy to solve, mm-hmm. and vice versa. Again, Fermat's last theorem, it's quite easy to understand. It's just a statement in basically arithmetic, Uh really. But it took almost 400 years to solve it. So, no, there's really no correlation between how hard the statement of a problem looks and how difficult it's going to be to crack it. I don't think there's any correlation at all. I see. So, let's see if uh, we can maybe attempt an explanation of at least the statement of this problem. Well, the Riemann hypothesis concerns a certain function. A function is a way of transforming one set of numbers into another set, like the squaring function is probably the most elementary function that's at all interesting, where you transform 2 into 4, and 3 into 9, and 10 into 100. Every number gets transformed into its square. Well, the Riemann hypothesis concerns a function like that that transforms, mathematicians say, maps one set of numbers into a different set of numbers. It's a much more complicated function than the the simple little squaring function. It's called the zeta function. Mm. Now, there's a thing about functions in general that mathematicians like. The thing mathematicians really like to know is which numbers does this function send to zero? Uh, If you take the squaring function, the only number that the squaring function sends to zero is zero, because zero times zero is zero. But with more complicated functions, you can get a lot of numbers that the function turns into zero. And the Riemann hypothesis concerns all those numbers that the zeta function, this very highfalutin function, turns into zero, and it says something about all those zeros. The zeta function is so complicated, it actually has an infinite number of these numbers that go into zero. And the Riemann hypothesis says a certain thing about all those numbers that go into zero. You apply the zeta function to them. Quite a simple thing, really, but nobody's been able to prove it. I see. And in the book, you tie into the the zeta function to uh, the prime numbers and the density of the prime numbers. It turns out, once you start digging into prime numbers, if you just, if you write out the first few dozen prime numbers or look at a list of them, you notice two things right away. One thing you notice is that they're kind of irregular. There's a sort of quality of randomness to them. You never quite know when the next one's going to show up. You get long gaps when there are no prime numbers at all. From 89 to 97, for example, there are no prime numbers in that gap. And then you get little clusters and clumps where there are prime numbers close together. So there's a sort of randomness, a sort of unevenness about them. You never quite know when the next one's going to show up. And the other thing you notice is that they thin out as you go along round about 100, there are more prime numbers in the neighborhood of 100 than there are in the neighborhood of 1,000. And there are way more in the neighborhood of 1,000 than there are in the neighborhood of a million, and so on. So they thin out as you go along. And most investigation, when mathematicians investigate the prime numbers, they're usually investigating one or other of these issues, either the issue of how they gradually thin out as you get into more and more stupendous numbers, or the issue of this clumping and spreading this random quality Mm. that they have. That's what makes them fascinating to mathematicians because, of course, a 
prime numbers are defined very simply. They're numbers that nothing goes into. And yet they have this deep and mysterious properties. And the combination of those two things I mentioned, the one that they thin out in a way that turns out to be remarkably regular and smooth, hmm. and the other, this odd clumping and scattering, which is very irregular. This combination of regularity with irregularity is just very fascinating. It's very fascinating to people who love numbers, and that's where most of the inquiries take place. And once you start digging deep, deep down into those issues, you bump up against the zeta function and Riemann's hypothesis. I see. And what does the zeta function say about this clumping of prime numbers then? That's an interesting question. Just to go back, as I said, a, a function maps one bunch of numbers into another bunch. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the zeta function, there's a whole bunch of numbers, there's an infinity of them, mm -hmm. that it maps into the humble zero. Mm. Now, if you start walking along, the Riemann hypothesis says that all the interesting numbers that do that lie on a single straight line. Mm. And if you walk along that line and stop and inspect all these numbers, again, they have a sort of randomness about them. They have a sort of random quality about them, rather like the prime numbers do. Mm -hmm. And these two randomnesses are related in deep and subtle ways. It, I mean, it's not as straightforward as, you know, if the zeros are clumping together, then the prime numbers are clumping together. It's, it's nothing as simple as that. But there are deep connections between the way these two things are distributed. And because the prime numbers are in the realm of arithmetic, which is rather difficult to get good generalization about, but the zeta function is in another realm. It's in the realm of, it's like in the realm of calculus where we have some really powerful tools for investigating functions. So we can go through the calculus with all these powerful tools that were developed in 19th and 20th centuries to handle calculus, to handle functions. We can go through calculus to attack these issues in arithmetic. Mm. And that's, again, that's, that's the fascination of it. I see. So it provides kind of a roundabout way of getting at some of the issues of the prime number distribution. Exactly. Exactly, yes. This very often happens in math. It happens in algebra. You know, people spend hundreds of years trying to figure out how to solve equations. So, uh, you know, you, you solve the quadratic equation, that's easy. The cubic equation gave us a bit more trouble, but they, they cracked mm. that in the late Renaissance. <laughs> and the quartic equation came soon after. And then they really got stuck on the fifth degree equation. They just couldn't mm. solve that. And then this wonderful detour turned up where instead of trying to crack these things head on, you start looking at the underlying symmetries of the roots of equation, and through that they got the solution. So sometimes you go, you sort of go around the back door and, and investigate things. But of course, finding the back door is very difficult because it's pitch dark. <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> um, so why are uh, mathematicians so fascinated in this particular problem? That's a good question. I guess mostly it's the challenge of the difficult. It's mm. the challenge of difficulty. Here's a problem that people have struggled with, the great minds of mathematics. You know, if you, if you have a mathematical education, if you have a mathematical training, you have these towering figures from the past whose names you learn, who you have to study. It's like if you go to Juilliard, you know, and, and learn how to play the cello. Mm. You've got these marble busts of Mozart and Beethoven and Bach glowering down at you. <laughs> and people who have a mathematical training, you have these great names from mathematics looking down on them. And you, you find yourself thinking, well, you know, these great figures from mathematics from the past, they took a crack at this problem and they couldn't do it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could do it? Mm. And a person who's confident of having really a high level of mathematical powers is just, is just drawn to have a try at it, I guess. <laughs> I don't have that level of mathematical powers <laughs> myself, but I've met some people who have. And I think that's, that's what drives them, the lure of the mm. immensely difficult. It's like climbing Mount Everest, you know, it's, it's there. 
Well, I recall you mentioning in the book that uh, this field of research, everyone can sort of find their way back to some towering figure like Gauss, for instance. And yes, yes. Um, you, you don't, <laughs> pretty much any branch of mathematics you dig into, sooner or later you bump up <laughs> against Gauss. He was, he was really a tremendous giant of the field. Gauss and an earlier mathematician, Leonhard Euler, a Swiss mathematician. Those two between them, really, you could almost say that between the two of them, they pretty much laid the foundations of, of mathematics, of all the mathematics that followed them. They're really tremendous figures, and I, I just stand in awe of minds like that. And they weren't freakish people. They were normal people. You know, they had family lives. Euler was a great family man, loved kids and traveled a lot and uh, attended at courts. They were human beings with full lives, and yet they churned out this amazing, high-powered intellectual, um, just right. incredible. It, it leaves you in awe of what the human mind can accomplish. Yeah. But I'm, I'm curious, uh, so what, what are some of the current figures behind, or maybe in the history of uh, solving this Riemann's hypothesis? Well, the thing that attracted me to it was actually the figure of Riemann himself. Hmm. I say somewhere in the book, I think in the preface, it, it's much easier to write a book if you can peg it on a human personality. Sure. Human beings are, are social animals, and the thing we're mostly interested in is each other. Mm -hmm. And if you can peg a story on a human personality, it's much easier to write it, it's much easier to focus your, your attention. Right. And it was really the personality of Bernhard Riemann who, who got my attention. And in particular, the thing that particularly got my attention was the contrast between the inner Bernhard Riemann and the outer one. Mm. Outwardly, he was uh, rather a pathetic character. He was in ill health most of his life. He was chronically poor. Most of the people he loved died off before his eyes. He was very shy and not very social, very difficult to draw out of his shell. A rather pathetic character. But inwardly, he had this tremendous power of imagination, uh, mathematical, well, not only mathematical, but also physical imagination. He was, in a way, he was a great physicist, too. His work, for example, laid the foundations of Einstein's general theory of relativity hmm. 60 or 70 years later. So um, that was the thing that got me, the contrast between this rather shabby, unhealthy, pathetic, outward man and this, this figure of tremendous vigor and power of imagination inside. That caught my attention, and that's really where it started. Other great names? Well, it's, it's been such a big problem that pretty much everybody from the late 19th century on has had, a, had something to do with it. I think David Hilbert, the great Prussian mathematician, David Hilbert, who flourished in the late 19th, early 20th century, I think he deserves a special mention. Well, not so much for any work he did on it as for the inspiration that he gave to others. And, of course, the, the greats of the past who laid the foundations on which Riemann built, Gauss and Euler. Riemann actually studied under Gauss. Gauss was teaching hmm. at uh, Göttingen University when Riemann was there. And in modern times, Alan Turing, uh, about whom there was a, a rather good play a few years ago, mm -hmm. a 20th century British mathematician, and some mathematicians still now alive and, and still working uh, that I mentioned, uh, Hugh Montgomery and uh, Andrew Odlisko get, get a lot of play in my book. You can almost open a, a catalog of mathematicians right, at right. any page and, and find somebody who worked on the problem. Right, well, uh, you, you certainly did provide a, a nice biography of a lot of these uh, characters involved in this problem. Um, but we are running a little bit out of time, and I'm just curious, what do you think the prospects are for uh, having this, uh, this hypothesis solved anytime soon? Well, as I say in the book, that's a bit of a mugs game. <laughs> um, I, I relate a famous story about David Hilbert, where he, I think 1925, where he was asked to rate three, three great outstanding problems. Mm -hmm and the prospects for their solution. He, he got it totally wrong, and he was a great mathematician. So what are my odds about <laughs> it being able to guess this? My, my gut feeling, having spent several months talking to mathematicians about it, my gut feeling is that we're not even close. Hmm. 
but if you pick up your New York Times tomorrow and see that the Riemann hypothesis has been cracked, don't be too surprised, <laughs> <laughs> because these things can take you by surprise. My gut feeling, though, is that we're not even close. I feel we're a bit lost on the mud. I see. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see who solved it. Yes. All right. Well, Mr. Darbyshire, I just want to thank you very much for joining us today on uh, Berkeley Grocks and discussing your book, Prime Obsession. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Charles. All right. You were just listening to Mr. John Darbyshire discussing his book, Prime Obsession, Bernhard Riemann and the Greatest Unsolved Problem in Mathematics. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, we'll be playing with the Grokatron 5000, and we'll have the answer to last week's question of the week. So, stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX, and we're back from the break, and Mr. John Derbyshire, author of Prime Obsession, Bernhard Riemann, and the Greatest Unsolved Problem in Mathematics, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Rocketron 5000. Thank you very much for uh, sticking around with us, Mr. Derbyshire. Oh, it's a pleasure, Charles. All right, so the game is against our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue, the Grokatron 5000, and the game that the Grokatron 5000 today has picked is Proof or No Proof. And the game is as follows. If each of the following five items were a mathematical hypothesis, tell me if you think it will be proved or not proved, and of course, remember to show your work. Okay? <laughs> and only write on one side of the plate. That's, right? that's correct. Yeah, okay. Good. <laughs> All right, are you ready to play against the Grokatron 5000 and its infinite wisdom? Yes, sir. Okay, very good. So, the Grokatron 5000 has given us these five hypotheses. Hypothesis number one, proof or no proof, low-carb diets. Proof. I think it's been proved. I just read something about it. Like the Atkins diet, you mean? Right, right. I think, I, think it's, uh, I think it's come through. I think it's been proved. Yeah, I think I know a lot of people who've uh, actually lost weight on that. Yeah. Hypothesis number two. Proof or no proof, Iraqi autonomy in the next six months. Oh, you go for the tough ones, don't you? <laughs> um, not proved. Not proved. And probably not capable of proof. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's see. Hypothesis number three, a Michael Jackson conviction. Proof. Proof. Okay. <laughs> Hypothesis number four, proof or no proof, a Bush re-election. Proof. Okay. Just because I think Kerry is a weak candidate. Okay. And hypothesis number five, proof or no proof, innovative Hollywood films. Proof. I have faith in American ingenuity. We'll come up with something innovative, <laughs> okay. even in Hollywood. Proof. Uh, all right. Uh, well, I certainly hope so, and uh, I guess the summer blockbuster season's coming around, so we'll take a look. 
All right, well, Mr. Dubbershire, thank you very much for sticking around and playing uh, against the Rockatron 5000, Proof or No Proof, and again for also discussing your book, uh, Prime Obsession, Bernhardt Riemann and the Greatest Unsolved Problem in Mathematics. That was fun. Thank you, Charles. All right, thank you very much. And now here's the crazy Scotsman with the answer to last week's question of the week. Oh, that's really right there, Frank. I'm really going to tell you all that shit. But last week's question of the week had a few damn fat means. Damn fat means, which makes me all a little crazy. But the question was, why can I not make a damn fat means without my blood blowing up? It's not really like real. The only reason why you can do this is because the ether is very volatile and it's not going to make it blow up. And that's the reason why it's dangerous to make damn fat means in your lab. Okay, and now here's the Tokyo Kid with this week's uh, question of the week. Now, I've just been wondering for a while from last week's question. What exactly is uh, ESA and why is it so, so flammable? Well, if you know the answer or just uh, think you know the answer, email us at grogs at hotmail.com. Uh, you won't win anything, but uh, you won't burn up so fast. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.